there's an old prophecy said to be Tibetan that when the great iron bird is flying in the sky the Dharma is going to come to the West the great iron bird has been flying now for a while and it's clear that the Dharma is coming to the West there's a lot of flourishing of Dharma activity primarily in this country but all over all over Europe and Canada now it's important to try and understand what the word Dharma means so that we can get some clear perspective about this this flourishing of activity now <coughs> Dharma is a Sanskrit word and its most general meaning is that of the law or the way things are the way things are happening the Tao the process of things all of that is the Dharma how things are happening there's also a more specific meaning of the, of the word Dharma and it is each of the discrete psychic and physical elements which make up our being all of the different elements of matter in our body are called dharmas each of the elements of mind thoughts <coughs> visions emotions all the elements of our mind our personality each of them are called dharmas so not only does dharma mean each of these elements which comprise our being but also the laws governing them the laws governing their process the task of all spiritual work is to explore the Dharma right? to uncover to to penetrate into the nature of the Dharma within us that is to explore all of the different elements of mind and body and also to discover to explore how they are all working in process the relationships of them exploring discovering the Dharma within ourselves that's that's the spiritual task there is one quality of mind which is the very basis for that kind of exploration for that kind of opening up to ourselves and that attitude of mind is called bare attention that is paying attention to what is happening without judging and without commenting and without evaluating and without choosing and without discriminating <coughs> without laying our projections about how we would like things onto what is happening but rather a very detached choiceless awareness sitting back and observing the passing show that that attitude of mind is very powerful because it frees us from our from our past conditioning from our past biases and it enables us to see things as they are In Suzuki Roshi's book, Zen Mind, <coughs> Beginner's Mind, 
he said that the purpose of studying Buddhism is not to study Buddhism at all, but to study oneself. Through the quality of bare attention, we're not learning any doctrines, we're not, we're not conceptualizing about any teachings, but rather directing our attention onto the mind-body process so that we can begin to see, so to experience how things are happening in us. So that we can experience the nature of our mind-body and how they're working through this quality of bare attention. That attitude of mind is, is expressed very beautifully in an old Zen haiku, which was written by, by some Zen master. The old pond, a frog jumps in, plop. <laughs> Not, oh, what a beautiful day it is, and the sound of the frog and the water is so heavenly, and none of that. A simple, direct experience of <coughs> what it was that happened. Right? Not, not long conceptualizations about it. Rather, the full awareness of the experience in the moment. <coughs> The old pond, the frog jumps in, plop. That's <coughs> bare attention. And that's, how we, that's the quality of mind which we have to cultivate in order to see with that kind of clarity what it is that's happening in ourselves. When this quality of mind is well developed, when it's well <coughs> cultivated, it effects very many changes in our way of living. <coughs> not, through, not through any program, but rather through the, through the cultivation of this kind of choiceless, detached observation. First of all, it grounds us very much in the present moment. A lot has been said and written about be here now be here now, but how to do it? <coughs> By cultivating bare attention, simply sitting back and observing what it is that's happening in the moment without judgment and without evaluation, we're very much grounded in the present instead of, as we usually are, fantasizing about the future, reminiscing about the past, It's very much that, that clear state of mind which is experiencing fully, in the moment, what it is that's happening. Bare attention also brings a very great rest for the mind. It's a very restful state. <coughs> Usually we're involved in clinging and grasping at the pleasant things that happen. Right? pleasant people, pleasant situations, pleasant objects, pleasant states of mind. Attachment to the pleasant, condemning the unpleasant, having aversion for it, wanting to push it away, 
clinging and condemning, clinging and condemning all day long. It's very tiring. It's a very unbalanced state of mind, causing great weariness. When we've cultivated bare attention towards what is happening in us and around us, the mind is no longer involved in this clinging and condemning. It's just the full experience without judgment of what it is that's happening. So it becomes very restful. In fact, during periods of intensive meditation, in advanced stages, a very common experience is for people to have very, very diminished needs for sleep. And in some cases, yogis go for days without sleep, not feeling tired at all, because their mind is in this state of balance, not reacting to everything that's coming, but simply observing it. It's very restful. Okay, so bare attention, it grounds us in the present, it puts the mind into a very restful <coughs> place. It also becomes effortless. When it's well cultivated, that, that quality of bare attention is working by itself. Nothing to do. It's all unfolding effortlessly. And that's what's meant when people like Krishnamurti say that there is nothing to do. Simply be aware. Right? Nothing special to do. And from the place he's talking from, that's, that's perfectly true. <coughs> the awareness, that quality of bare attention is just happening by itself. But for most of us who do not start out at that place, in the beginning it takes a great <coughs> effort for it to become effortless. For most people, it does not drop down as a gift from heaven, this quality of awareness. It's a mental quality that has to be cultivated. It's as if you wanted to sit and learn to play the piano. You sit down and you take a few lessons and you <coughs> practice, and in the beginning, it's very difficult, and the fingers don't move easily, and the sounds are terrible. And you practice, and you practice, and the fingers start moving more proficiently. The sounds get more and more beautiful. At a certain point, there is no longer any difference between the playing and the practice. You sit down, and you play, and the playing itself is the practice. You have so integrated that proficiency into your life. It's exactly the same way with this choiceless awareness, with bare attention. In the beginning, it takes an effort. We have, to, we have to cultivate to develop that quality. And there are many gaps, and a lot of struggles, and a lot of hindrances. But as we practice day after day after day, practicing this quality of awareness, it gets easier and easier until it starts working by itself. And then there's no effort required to be aware. It has become fully integrated into, into our consciousness. So the whole direction of the practice is very much towards the state of effortless awareness. 
But that's a state that has to be cultivated. We must make the effort to reach the effortlessness. Also, bear attention. This, this sitting back and observing the flow of things is very universally applicable, which means that it's not just when we sit for a half an hour or an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. Meditation is at that time and the whole rest of the day we go about forgetful. There's not so much point in that. There is no time and no situation when awareness is not appropriate. Whether we're sitting or standing or lying or walking or eating, engaged in whatever activity we may happen to be doing in the moment, awareness is appropriate. We should cultivate that state of bare attention on all objects, on all situations, on all states of mind, so that we begin to wake up to who we are, to what we're doing, so that we can see what's happening. The cultivation of bare attention has very much to do with the quality of listening. Right? Listening to what's happening. Perhaps some of you have sometimes sat by the side of a river right, and began to listen to the sound of the river. At first, it, it's <coughs> one big rush of a sound, right? One, one big sound that we're hearing. But you sit very quietly, you listen and you listen, and slowly in that one big sound, you begin to hear many, many, many different sounds, right? The mind begins to pick up very fine, fine qualities of that sound of the river flowing. It's exactly the same way when we begin to listen to ourselves. At first, it appears that there's one being here, one self, one I. As we begin to listen, to our minds, to our bodies, we begin to hear very, very many things happening in this being. It's not, it is not one entity which is going throughout life, but a flow of forces, a flow of elements. And as we listen with a very, with a very calm, quiet, detached, attentive mind, we can experience on very, very microscopically subtle levels everything that is happening in this process. All through the cultivation of this quality of awareness, of bare attention, sitting back and listening to what's happening, not adding anything to the flow, not projecting anything onto it, not expecting that it should be one way rather than another rather experiencing fully as it comes, as it arises. Choiceless awareness. The wisdom that comes out of that state of mind has to do with understanding <coughs> the inherent characteristics of <coughs> all existence. The characteristics 
of all processes of mind and body. And what these characteristics are, bring, when they're understood, they bring the mind to a very great state of balance when they're experienced. What are these three characteristics that, that are inherent in all conditioned phenomena? In the mind, in the body, internally, externally, they all share in these. The first is that everything is impermanent. There is not a single element to be found any place within this, within this process that is permanent. The elements of matter are arising and passing away. The elements of mind are arising and passing away. Consciousness itself, the knowing faculty, is arising and passing away at each moment. There is no one who's sitting back and observing it, no entity behind it all. It's all this flow of process. Everything impermanent, everything in flux, nothing to hold on to. When we begin to experience this flow of impermanence in ourselves on deeper and deeper levels, that's when the mind begins to let go, to stop clinging, to stop being attached, because it sees everything as arising and vanishing in the instant. There is nothing to hold on to. It's like trying to grasp a bubble on water. As soon as you grasp it, it bursts, it vanishes. All the elements that comprise our being, very very much share this characteristic of impermanence, of arising and passing away in the moment. The second characteristic of all conditioned phenomena is that precisely because they are all impermanent, they are all inherently unsatisfactory unsatisfactory in the sense that they are incapable of being a source of lasting happiness, of completion, of perfection. Something which is in its nature momentarily impermanent cannot possibly be the cause of any kind of permanent happiness, because that cause itself is arising and vanishing moment to moment. So people who make a big investment in this, in this flow of phenomena as being the cause of their happiness are destined to very great suffering. That's an example. There are some people who are very attached to the happiness associated with, with their bodies, right, to the pleasures they get out of their body. And their whole lives revolve about cultivating that cause of happiness. It is inevitable that there is no way that any one of us will escape ending up as a corpse. It is inevitable. It's part of the law. For someone who has invested in this body as being a cause for their, 
for their eternal happiness in the process of decay, of dissolution, there's going to be very great pain involved. And that example can apply to anything that we're very attached to. Right? Trying to hold on to some state, some situation, some person, something which we think is going to be the cause of our permanent happiness, our permanent well-being. It's impossible. It, it is not in harmony with the laws of the Dharma, with the laws of nature. That's what's meant by the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness. Because it's all impermanent. The last characteristic of all existence, which is the very essence of what the Buddha taught, <coughs> the very heart of the Buddha's teachings, is that in this whole process of mind and body, there is nowhere to be found anything which can be called a self or an I or me or mine because it is all impermanent. There is nothing which lasts even a moment. A very rapid arising and passing away of all phenomena, mental and material. There is no entity which abides in that process which is experiencing it. No one behind the process. There is no abiding, constant, permanent entity of any kind whatsoever. It is all in process, all changing. But this is the great conditioning, this concept of I, of self, of soul, of me, of mine. This conditioning is very powerful in us. And very much of the meditation practice and all, all spiritual work involves seeing things as they are. That is not projecting concepts onto the process, but just sitting back and observing them. And in this process of observation, of bare attention, all these three characteristics are revealed whether one knows about them or doesn't know about them, or whether, whether they're believed in or not believed in, it's irrelevant because it's not a conceptual understanding. It's a very intuitive experience of the nature of things that comes when the mind is silent. And it's only in that silence of mind that the development of wisdom can happen. Right, true understanding of the nature of things. And so very much of the meditation practice is precisely in developing that silent awareness of mind. So that we can, we can begin to see how things are working, not how we would like them to be or how we think they should be, but just observing things as they are. Bare attention makes possible this growth of wisdom. And it happens when the mind has achieved a very great balance. 
not clinging, not condemning, not identifying part of the process as being I. Just choiceless observation. This balance of mind is very well expressed by the Taoist symbol of the yin and yang. It's very, the mind is very receptive in its choicelessness, right? Taking whatever comes as part of the flow and observing it. Very receptive mind, very open, very soft. The mind is very creative in the sense of being very alert, very actively attentive. It's a very luminous consciousness in which, in which this quality of awareness is developed. And this balance of mind that comes when this receptivity is co-joined with this alert attentiveness, the integration of yin and yang within our own minds, it's in that balance that we begin to see things clearly. Really observing the, the the flow of our mind-body process. It's important to understand that wisdom does not come from any particular object, any particular state. We're not striving to attain anything special. It's in the balance of mind and the observation of the process of things <coughs> that wisdom arises. Also Suzuki Roshi, he devoted one chapter in his book calling it nothing special. There is nothing special in our mind, in our body, in the way things are happening. All things are equally <coughs> impermanent. So there's no special thing to want to, to attain or to grasp to, to grasp at or to hold on to. Nothing special at all. The objects of awareness are not important. Whatever comes as part of the flow is fine. It's the quality of mind which is observing them that is important, that balance of mind. So there's no, there's no special desirability to have lots of far-out experiences, right? to, be, to be levitating off the ground or to, to astral travel or many of the things that can happen or might happen. They are all nothing special, all more things happening all subject to the same laws of impermanence. What we want to do is to let go of everything, not identify with any state whatsoever. To become free on all sides, not, not to get attached even by golden chains to anything that's happening. Sometimes some people have the idea that this awareness is appropriate when we sit or maybe do the walking meditation and not the rest of the time. My <coughs> teacher 
tells a very appropriate story of the necessity to be in this state of awareness all the time. It seems that a monk was meditating out in the jungle someplace, and this man-eating tiger comes up and grabs him and is, is about to eat him up. And he, the tiger grabbed the monk by, by his feet. He couldn't get away. He was, he was caught already by the tiger. The monk was very wise. He, he had heard the teachings and understood and practiced. There was nothing he could do. So he just abided in that place of awareness. And as the tiger is eating up his leg, he's just aware, painting, 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 staying very aware of what's happening, not condemning it, not, not, not getting involved, not identifying with it, merely observing the process. By the time the tiger got to his knee, he had reached the first stage of enlightenment. Right? <laughs> his mind was so clear. The tiger goes on eating, and he's eating up his leg. By the time he got to his waist, second stage. Tiger's eating more, third stage. By the time the tiger got to the heart, he was fully enlightened. Right? There is no time at all and no circumstance <laughs> in which we should not be aware, not be mindful. Enlightenment can happen at any moment. <coughs> so if you happen to be outside and caught by a man-eating tiger, <laughs> stay mindful. There are two qualities of mind, two factors of mind, which have to be cultivated in order to develop this state of bare attention. The first is the factor of concentration. Concentration means one-pointedness of mind, the ability of the mind to stay on a single object. You put the mind here, you say stay there, it just stays, right? It does not waver. And the example is given of a candle flame which is in a windless place. The flame of the candle is not flickering. It's just staying steady because there's no wind. Concentration is exactly that same steadiness of mind. The mind which has been trained to stay on an object without wavering, without flickering. Some degree of concentration <coughs> is absolutely essential for the development of awareness. The mind that is very scattered, that cannot stay on an object, it is very difficult to develop any kind of penetrating insight. <coughs> we need that strength and steadiness of mind to begin to observe how things are happening. So the factor of concentration is part of the, of the meditation practice, to develop that quality of mind of one-pointedness. It is indispensable, but it is not enough, it is not sufficient a person can develop very strong samadhi, or concentration. Very high states, his mind becomes so fixed on the object, it's absorbed into it, goes into a trance-like state, or jhana, or samadhi level, said to be very blissful, very ecstatic, out of the body. It's possible to reach very high states of consciousness, cosmic consciousness, God consciousness. Right? 
universal mind, all through the power of that one-pointedness. But there is a very great liability to being attached to the bliss and to identify with that whole particular process. My teacher was, was uh, trained and then taught in Burma for a while. And he had come to the center one 12-year-old boy whose samadhi was extraordinary, just as a young kid. Evidently, he had done a lot of work in the past. <laughs> and my teacher trained him in the samadhi practice, in the concentration practice. And he reached th this level of, of concentration, of samadhi, called universal consciousness. Right? A, an extraordinary attainment, very high, very high degree of concentration. And he came down from wherever that place is, and he was asked what, what had happened, what was it like? And he said, I'm God, because my consciousness encompasses everything. There's nothing which is not part of me, right? Universal consciousness. That's a very nice place to hang out, I'm sure. One can become God in that sense, expanding one's consciousness to include the entire universe. It is not the end. It is not freedom. It's a very powerful state of mind, very extraordinary, extraordinary, but still part of the wheel, still processes going on, still impermanent. The development of concentration by itself can lead, when very well developed, to states of mind like that. That is not wisdom. That is strength and power of mind. <coughs> wisdom comes from understanding the process of things, not from attaining to any special state. It's through the development of, of this second factor of mind, which must be, must be cultivated along with concentration, that makes the growth of wisdom possible. And that's the factor of mindfulness. Mindfulness means noticing what each object is as it arises, not allowing the mind to forget what it is that's happening, not having the mind sink into the object or become absorbed by the object, but noticing very clearly, moment to moment, what it is that's happening. Mindfulness is a very powerful factor of mind in that it has two very important functions on, on our path. First, it brings all the factors of enlightenment together. There are certain mental factors which all have to be ripened and matured for the moment of enlightenment to happen. Mindfulness brings all these factors. If we are mindful, moment to moment, observing what it is that's happening, without <coughs> clinging, without condemning, without identifying with it, without taking it to be self, 
then all the other factors of enlightenment will also be present, will also be developed, all through the power of mindfulness. But it's also not sufficient to just have these factors of enlightenment present. They all have to be in balance. If there's too much of one, if there's too much concentration and not enough wisdom, the mind, the mind gets absorbed. Too much effort without enough concentration, the mind gets restless. They all have to be in balance, all of these spiritual faculties. And the factor which balances them all is mindfulness. Not only does it bring all the factors of enlightenment, but it keeps them in proper balance. So the entire task before us is to train the mind in this quality of mindfulness, being aware of what it is that's happening moment to moment without clinging, without condemning, without identifying with it. That's that quality of choiceless awareness. Through the development of mindfulness comes very liberating and penetrating insight. We begin to understand not only what it is that's happening in our mind and body, but also how things are happening. We understand not only the content, but the process. And that's what leads to freedom. And this whole spiritual path is summed up in one very famous sentence in the Diamond Sutra, which says, develop a mind which clings to naught. Develop a mind which does not cling to anything at all. Not to the body, not to the mind, not to situations or people or states of being, <coughs> develop a mind which clings to naught. Freedom on every side. And it's precisely that kind of mind which is developed with the cultivation of this moment-to-moment -moment awareness, moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness. That's what we're going to be doing. And at the end of the five weeks, we will all be totally mindful. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any questions? Well, you said that the soul was separate from the process, but then you said that you shouldn't identify with it. What do you mean by soul? Both the object and the knowing of the object are both in process. There is not any one who is knowing. Knowing is also an impermanent process, right? So it is not so clarifying to add to that process a concept of self or soul, because it does not relate to any, to any part of what is happening. 
It's merely a mental concept. All that is happening is this flow of impersonal elements. There is no one behind it. Does that relate to... The whole, the whole development of awareness comes from experiencing things with a silent mind, not with our thoughts and concepts about them. It's going from the thought conceptual level of mind to the intuitive experiential level that comes out of silence. So all the words that, that are used are all irrelevant, right? in comparison to the experience of silent awareness. And I think that is worthy of mentioning now that you don't have to believe anything, anything that's said at all. All the real, true, deep understanding is going to come from your own experience in meditation. And whether you know the concepts or don't know the concepts, it does not matter at all. Some of the, the most advanced yogis are those who never studied, <coughs> who never read a book, who are not particularly bright, who just take instruction and do it. And the whole Dharma unfolds within themselves. They experience many stages of enlightenment and not necessarily able to communicate them at all, which is all irrelevant to the experience, right? And that's what's important. The experience of the Dharma within ourselves, which comes from a silent mind. Then all distinctions slip away. As we mentioned before, there's no Buddhism, and there's no Hinduism, and there's no Mahayana, and there's no Hinayana, when the mind is silent. Right? All those are concepts. There are two kinds of concentration. One is that kind of concentration which is fixed on a single object, any, any object, a breath or a light or a visualization or a mantra, a sound, any object at all, fixing the mind on one point. That's the development of one kind of samadhi. Another kind of concentration is called momentary samadhi, momentary concentration. And it means the mind which is concentrated on each object as it arises in the moment. Not on a fixed object, but moment to moment having the mind steady on that, on that particular object. That's the kind of concentration which we will be developing. In other words, <coughs> none at all. The meaning of vipassana, literal meaning, means to see things clearly, right? to see things as they are. 
That's what the word means. Samatha is one-pointedness, is concentration. Okay, and now the mindfulness that you're talking about, is that similar to your sati? I mean, that's different right. from meditation practice, right? That's like an ongoing thing, a daily activity? No, mindfulness is the meditation practice. There's no mindfulness is at the very center of what the practice is. It's to develop that quality of mindfulness. Okay, then it seems like there's a difference for someone between their attention, mindfulness, and meditation practice and everyday experience or ongoing experience. So what is one? I don't know what use it is to make the There's no difference at all. I'm confused by people talking about concentration of dhyana and concentration of somebody and what's what? Concentration, or samadhi, which is the, the Pali or Sanskrit for concentration, simply means one-pointedness of mind. Okay? That's, that's what it means. And there are many levels to that one-pointedness. Mindfulness means the moment-to-moment awareness of what it is that's happening. Not forgetting what the present object is. Always being in the present moment aware. Right? They're two different factors. All of meditation, all of this insight meditation is to develop this moment-to-moment mindfulness. And it has nothing to do with whether you're sitting or standing (coughs) or walking. At every moment that you're mindful, you're meditating. When, when the awareness is very sharp, in dreaming state, you can, you can be aware. Well, is that awareness that's awareness? The awareness itself is just another process. Okay. Right? The awareness, mindfulness itself, is impermanent. It's arising and passing away moment to moment. There is nothing constant, nothing permanent. Everything is... Right. All of it. It's all process. Right. Momentary concentration. They they go to different places. Okay. The concentration on a single object leads to absorption in the object and to those very high levels of consciousness. Right? To cosmic consciousness. There are many levels. The momentary concentration is that concentration which <coughs> is developed for the purposes of enlightenment, for the experience of Nibbana. Right? Not being absorbed in the object, but being microscopically aware of the flow. It's all process. It's arising and passing away in the moment. In other words, there's a moment of seeing. If mindfulness has been developed, in that moment of seeing, mindfulness will arise. The seeing consciousness vanishes, mindfulness vanishes, there's a new moment. Again, mindfulness may arise. It does, as you will see in your meditation practice, all these factors, consciousness included, are arising and passing away. 
There is nothing which is staying, which is staying still or permanent. It's all a flow of phenomena. But you don't have to believe it. You know, when you when you sit and and you observe the process in yourself, you'll see. It remains in the sense that it may be present at every moment, but it's the arising and vanishing in a moment, and again arising and vanishing. Right? It's not one entity which stays. It's a process. It's a, it's a continuity of process. But there's no one behind it. There's no one who is being mindful. It is merely a function of mind. No, they're different paths. You can be a fully enlightened being and not at all go on the power trip of mind. Right? They are two completely different paths. You can have all kinds of powers and not be enlightened. Because wisdom and strength of mind, wisdom and power, are two different factors and they're developed through different practices. <coughs> so they should not be confused. Power is related to the strength of samadhi. If you develop very strong samadhi, very strong concentration, that's the basis for power arising. Concentration. Right. Right. (coughs) I use the word samadhi a lot because it's easier to save in concentration. (laughs) It sort of flows. We are going to develop them simultaneously. Right? There, are different, there are different ways of developing the path. One way, and it's a very traditional one, is to develop samadhi first. And then use that power of mind to then develop insight. Right? That can take a very long time, because you need very special circumstances to develop strong concentration. Part of what has happened in Burma in particular in the last 100 or 150 years is the revival of vipassana techniques which develop mindfulness and concentration simultaneously right? which bring which bring this moment-to-moment awareness and just enough concentration sufficient for enlightenment they're cultivated together and that's what we're going to be doing There is always that unsatisfactoriness, although when we're in a state of mindfulness, the mind is not reacting to it. The mind is staying very balanced, 
aware of the impermanence of everything. It's around the it's because of the impermanence that things are unsatisfactory. Right? So when you see the impermanence, automatically you begin to get a sense for the incompleteness of it. Right? The, the the imperfection. And even when you're mindful, because mindfulness itself is impermanent. It's just a means to, to go beyond this process of mind-body. In other words, if you have a great toothache, just tremendous toothache, the pain is excruciating. You know. One way is to go on a whole trip condemning the pain. That just adds to the suffering, right? You're condemning the pain and wishing it weren't there, but it's still there. So you're adding the mental grief to the physical suffering. If you're very mindful, you're not condemning it, you're not identifying with it, but the pain is still there. It's still, it's still painful, it still hurts. But there's not that mental imbalance with regard to it. The state of nirvana is comparable to the whole, not a very satisfactory state. We want to get free of this burden of, of impermanent process. We don't have so much freedom with regard to what happens. <coughs> most, of wha most of what happens to us is determined by our past karma. How we react to it is very much within our freedom of the moment. We can cultivate mindfulness or not cultivate mindfulness. There is no necessity binding us to react to things. It's, it's the freedom lies in how we are relating to what it is that's happening, right, in the moment. Absolutely. see for yourself as you cultivate mindfulness and in our sitting today you'll see how very difficult it is to stay mindful and exactly what kind of effort is needed to cultivate that quality you'll see that it very much depends upon your own effort of mind right? nobody is going to drop down mindfulness from the sky it's a mental factor which has to be cultivated I will always look at women's breasts and 
Well, no, okay. Not exactly. What happens as the mind becomes silent, and as we become more and more aware, is that a lot of the things which are below our normal threshold of awareness, a lot of what is called the subconscious motivation for what we're doing, suddenly becomes illuminated by that mindfulness. We begin to observe the, that subconscious conditioning, which, which determines how we are. And the process of awareness itself, just seeing, oh, that's what's motivating me, you know? Just in that, in that quality of mindfulness of illumination frees us from that kind of conditioning. And we, it's very interesting, as we develop the meditation practice, this is a week or two ahead, but we're going to get very much involved in observing intentions to do things which normally we are very, very unaware of. An intention arises in the mind, we act all mechanically, not knowing that the intention was there, not being aware of the initial action, all mechanical. As we become more and more tuned to what it is that's happening in the moment, as intentions to do things arise, we become aware of them. And in that awareness, we then have the choice, am I going to do it or aren't I going to do it? Simply through the through the state of awareness. Because when you're on the level of perceiving process rather than content, you see it all is arising and passing away in the moment, no linking up, right? It's because we're not seeing process, we're not seeing this arising and vanishing, <coughs> but involved in a whole train of association, it's out of that content level that the whole concept of self arises. Right? Self is a concept, it's a mental construct, it does not refer to anything at all that's happening. psychologist this will be of interest I was teaching one course in India <coughs> and there was this psychologist from California there and I'm sitting there rapping about how there's no I and there's no ego and every time I said there's no ego this guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like it was really hard <laughs> and afterwards he came up and was meant by the use of those words 
and he had a very interesting point. He said that in Western psychology, or at least in the type he studied, ego does not refer to any entity, but rather to the relationship of things, right? So in that sense, every time I had said there is no ego, he was hearing it, there is no relationship. And that was a very correct perception on his part of the, the incorrectness of that use of ego, because there very much is a relationship of what's happening. Things are not happening randomly. All the elements of mind and body are in relation to one another of very various kinds. So in that sense, there is ego without self, right? There is this relationship without any one behind it, merely certain processes in a certain order, in a certain harmony. There is a continuity to the process. By saying that there is no I or no self, it does not mean that this whole thing falls apart. It's going to go on in the same way because from the beginning there was no self. It's nothing that's being destroyed or gotten rid of. It's not there. It's merely a concept, right? So there is this continuity of process, and that's why we can relate to one another in a consistent way. Right, exactly. We identify with various aspects of it. The point of being aware of your intention to do something. It, in listening to Trumpet's teachings, it seems like there's a difference there in that he emphasizes spontaneity. It seems like you're always aware of your intention to do something, but it, it breaks the spontaneity. Okay. It doesn't in practice because being unaware does not mean being spontaneous. If we're acting very mechanically, very, very much as a conditioned response to phenomena, that's not spontaneous. That's a robot, mm -hmm. right? A certain input comes, we act all unaware, all unmindfully. That's, that is not a spontaneous state of mind. It's a, it's a purely mechanical one. Spontaneity comes when the mind is silent, when the mind is on this intuitive level, right? Just, just being moment to moment aware. When the, when the mindfulness is developed, it does not chop up the flow as saying, oh, intention and action. And in the beginning, that's useful. So we clearly focus <coughs> on each particular process. When it's cultivated, it flows along very rhythmically. Just a, there's just this silent awareness of everything that's happening. And that is a very spontaneous flow which comes out of that silent awareness, right? Because things are not happening mechanically or because of, because of a, simply because of a past conditioning, you know? But we're adding to that, to that flow of cause and effect this whole dimension of awareness. But very silent, very harmonious, very much part of the flow. In the beginning it will appear this, this disjointedness. Okay? Because we have to train ourselves to be mindful. For example, it's like when, if you're practicing a piece to, to play on the piano. Really, at first, you have to play it very slowly, getting all the notes correctly, practicing it just 
very carefully, in order to achieve the ability to play it very, very smoothly. If you start out practicing quickly, all that's going to happen is there will be very much reinforcement of all the mistakes you're making. Right? You, you keep on playing quickly, making the same mistakes over and over again. If you practice very systematically, very carefully, you build up a very precise proficiency. Right? And then it gets very, very harmonious. And it's exactly the same way with awareness. It's like Gurdjieff used to tell people, used to give these lectures on self-remembering. Right? And everybody would sit there and agree that it's a very good idea. Yes, yes. And five minutes after they walk out of the room, be completely forgetful again. It is not enough to have the idea of moment-to-moment awareness. It has to be cultivated. Right? And that's what the meditation practice is. The very systematic development of moment-to-moment silent awareness. People progress at very many different levels and different speeds. It's interesting, the, the, there is a description of how people progress as they practice. And it said that some people progress very slowly and with a lot of pain. Just there's a lot of suffering involved. Right? Some people pro- progress very slowly, but mostly pleasant. You know, pleasant sensations, pleasant situations. Some people progress very quickly with a lot of pain. And some people progress quickly with a lot of pleasure. It does not matter, and that is out of our control. It very much depends on our past accumulations of karma, how, how developed our spiritual faculties of mind already are. It's irrelevant. If we're facing the right direction, if we're going in the direction of light, all we have to do is keep on walking. If it takes a year, it'll take a year. If it takes 10 years, 60 years, five lifetimes. If we're heading towards light, that's all that's, all that's important. We want to be facing in the right direction, not going backwards, not going towards more darkness. So however, however each person's evolution is, that's where we each have to start from. And it can be understood somewhat in terms of the changes that happen within a lifetime. For example, if you think back to perhaps five or ten years ago, your body is completely different. Even (coughs) on a cellular level, there is not a single element in the body which is the same. It has all undergone transformation. The mind has been transformed countless more times arising and passing away. 
There is nothing which you can point to now, nothing at all in the mind-body, which is the same as it was then. It has all changed countless numbers of times. But what you are now has been conditioned by what you were then and every successive moment. In other words, every moment conditions the arising of the next moment. Nothing is carried over, but there is a relationship of one moment to the next. The concept of I stays in the mind, right? We had the concept of I then, and we have the concept of I now, and the concept of I tomorrow, but that's merely a thought construct. That does not refer to anything that is actually in the mind-body. It's merely a, a mental projection. So at the moment of death, if one chooses to hear rebirth, and it's not, it's not necessary to believe it or not, but the moment of death, the quality of consciousness conditions the arisal of the rebirth consciousness. Nothing is carried over, but depending upon that force of mind at the moment of dying, depending upon that arises, arises the, the new consciousness. Dependent origination, but no element which is carried through. Can you hear that at all? But also, let me say, you don't have to believe it. If you, if and when, and you do practice, you will experience this flow of elements in yourself. You will experience how consciousness itself is arising and vanishing in the moment. Right? It's not really a course outline, it's sort of a, a vague description. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a, a recommended book list, and you can get that from the Naropa office. Probably not, because I don't know anything about it. part of this understanding of the relationships of different elements within the process, right? There are certain laws governing both the mental and physical process, that being one of the laws governing the unfolding of the material elements. But as you experience them in your body, you will see that it is a process. It is not a single entity, that it's all arising and vanishing in the moment. During the sitting practice, we're going to start <coughs> with a very simple object of awareness. And it's going to be mindfulness of breathing. And that can be done in one of two ways. When you breathe in, the abdomen rises, and when you breathe out, it falls. Keeping the attention on that movement of rising and falling not imagining, not visualizing, 
but experiencing the movement, rising, falling, rising, falling. Not controlling the breath in any way, not forcing it, merely to, to stay attentive to that movement. It's one way. The other way is to be aware of the breath as it goes in and out of the nostrils. Keeping the attention more or less around the area of the tip of the nose. Keeping the attention much as a watchman at a door, observing people go in and out. The attention should be aware of the breath going in and the breath coming out. Not particularly following it all the way down or all the way out. Simply being aware of that in and out breath. It is helpful in the, the beginning of this practice to make mental notes, either of rising, falling, or in and out. It serves two purposes. One, it keeps the mind on the object. It helps to keep the mind from wandering. Secondly, it keeps track of the breath. That is to say, if we're going in, out, in, out, and all of a sudden we're saying out and the breath is coming in, it's a sign that we missed someplace, right? So it's kind of a, it's kind of a signal for us. It's helpful to do in the beginning. You should choose one place or the other. In the first few minutes, just see which, which object appears more clear, either the rising, falling, or the in and out. And then stay with that one. Do not go back and forth. At times it may appear to get a little less distinct. At that time, don't, don't switch to the other object thinking it's going to be easier. Once you've decided where you're going to cultivate your attention, keep it there and try to remain with it in all the rhythms of it. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes not, sometimes deep, sometimes shallow, sometimes long, sometimes short. It is not a breathing exercise. It's an exercise in mindfulness. Okay. Are there any questions about it? Yeah. How is um, particularly noting rising and falling and things that really synchronize and all that? How is that really different than concentration? This is a very, this beginning practice is very much a concentration technique. It's giving the mind a single object, right? We want to develop sufficient concentration to then apply it to the awareness of moment-to-moment -moment objects. So this is what we're starting with. Okay. We are going to be including more and more objects in the field of awareness as we go on. Would you say then that your approach is different than Ricochet's in that he puts less initial emphasis on concentration? No, also, he, he tells people to, to observe the outgoing breath. Okay. You, will see you will see for yourself how it, how it develops and how it compares. The eyes should be closed unless you have been trained in a technique where you keep them open and would prefer to. Keeping the eyes open is merely a way of putting the eyes someplace and then forgetting about them. Right? The eyes have no function in the development of awareness. Generally, it, it seems easier if they're closed and relaxed, but it doesn't matter. Right? You should not be looking around. Now, then you're not being mindful. Assume a posture that is comfortable, right? Any way that feels comfortable to you with the back reasonably straight. It does not have to be stiff or strained. 
I have known people who have experienced enlightenment in the weirdest postures. You can sit in a chair if you like, it does not matter. The important thing is not having to move very often. So if you are in a very cramped, contorted position, generally it will get uncomfortable quicker, right? So you'll have to move. The idea is assume a relaxed and easy position that you can just sit in. Okay, I think we'll sit for about half an hour. Fall away, but it is useful in the beginning for most people. The hands should be kept stationary, either behind one's back or in <coughs> front of one or at one's side. Also, it's not, it's better to look just maybe a foot ahead of oneself, so as not to look at one's own feet because then there's going to be involved the concept of foot, right, arising from the visual contact. All the attention should be on the experience of the movement, the experience of the lifting and forward and placing. Okay. Are there any questions? Uh, can mindfulness of breath be simultaneous with mindfulness of lifting, or should you wait until the breath falls away? You sh at this time, you should not be with the breath, because the mind cannot have two objects at the same time. When what falls away? Uh, the attention on the step the right, but you should keep the you should cultivate the attention on it so it does not fall away. And you said later it, it the, no, the labeling <laughs> falls away. In other words, when it's developed, you don't have to be saying lifting forward, the right. but the awareness of the movement will be there.